Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning you are our refuge and our strength, a proven help in times of trouble. Therefore, we have no reason to fear, though the earth itself gives way, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. For we know there is a calm, peace-giving, secure stream, a river that makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of you, the Most High. For you are in the midst of your people. You are in the midst of that city. Therefore, we will not be moved. You help us when the morning dawns, when the nations rage and the totters kingdom. You simply utter your voice and the earth melts. You, the Lord of hosts, are with us. You, the God of Jacob, are our fortress. As we gather under your word, help us to behold your works, O Lord. Help us to be still and know that you are God. That our hearts will be encouraged, that our lives will be changed. That your son Jesus will be exalted among the nations. That he would be exalted in all the earth. We ask it for his sake. Amen. If you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible and are borrowing one of the ones from uh, one of the chairs in front of you, you'll find our text on page 917. Back in 405 AD, uh, a young man by the name of Maywin Suckett lived a fairly easy life. At 16, his believing family taught him the things of God, and his father's uh, position in uh, the village meant that he lacked uh, very little as part of the upper class of that day. And yet that kind of charmed life came to an end as raiders came upon his village and took Maywin into slavery and dragged him off into a faraway land. Though his family were believers in Maywin's own words at that time, he knew not the true God. I was now surrounded by pagan barbaric people at the age of just 16. Yeah, that true God that he did not yet know knew Maywin. And showed mercy on him. While he was forced to watch over his captor sheep, God brought to mind all of the things that his parents had told him about Christ and about his saving work. Later he would write that it was in those shepherd fields that the Lord opened the understanding of my unbelieving heart. That I might remember at last my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God who had regard for my wretchedness and mercy on my youth and ignorance. After six years of slavery, the God who saved him also showed up in Maywin's dream and revealed to him that if he would get to the coast, there was a ship waiting there that would take him back to his homeland. So in the morning, Maywin got up. He walked almost 200 miles to the coast, boarded that ship, and indeed arrived back at home united with friends and family. Maywin continued to grow in his faith, prepared for ministry to honor the God that saved him. And then God showed up again. 
also in a dream. This time giving him an image of the very people that had captured him. The very culture that had raided his people and took him off into captivity. But this time they were saying, come back to us, Maywin. Come back to us and preach the good news of Jesus to us. I think most of us would balk at that idea. If we were ever in part of any kind of human slavery or perhaps the military serving as a POW and were able to gain our freedom and to escape those horrors, to have God or somebody else say to us, actually, you need to go back to those same people and preach the gospel to them. We would be very hesitant, if not absolutely incredulous in the thought of that. But Maywin thought better. He joyfully answered God's call. And sometime in the 430s AD, he returned to the island of his captors, not as a slave, but as a missionary. That land was an island we now call Ireland. And from his helpful writings, we know Maywin Suckett, now not by that unusual name, but by his pen name Patricius, or in modern parlance, Patrick. Staying in Ireland for the rest of his life, Patrick described his mission like this. I came to the people of Ireland to preach the gospel and to suffer insult from the unbelievers, bearing the reproach of my growing abroad and many persecutions, even unto bonds, and to give my free birth for the benefit of others. So despite threats and resistance from the pagans in the island at that time, he could write, I feared none of these things because of the promises of heaven. I cast myself into the hands of God Almighty, who rules everywhere. As the prophet says, cast thy thought upon God and he shall Sustain these. Friends and loved ones, this morning, green beer has nothing on the gospel of Greece. So if you want to wear green and be proud of something, I don't know what, that's fine. But as a believer, don't be afraid to claim Patrick as one of your own. Don't be afraid to, to claim him as uh, part of our spiritual heritage. Because to lift up Patrick is not to honor a mere man, but the God who saved him who took a sinner and made him to be a saint. And when someone asks, why do you like Patrick so much? Why do you wear green on St. Patrick's Day? Tell them about how God opened your eyes and helped you to see your sin and to put your faith in your Savior. Patrick's story is dramatic. It's unexpected. But God's in the business of dramatic and unexpected. Such stories are not unique throughout the course of church history. This morning, as we turn our attention to Acts 9, uh, something very simpler, dramatic and unexpected happens through the conversion of a man named Saul. And this morning, we want to look at God's converting work, both in his life and in our life, and see what implications we can draw out of it. So I invite you to stand as I begin reading Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God! And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. So they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Then he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Saul's conversion is nothing less than miraculous. In fact, in many ways, his conversion is singular in human history. But at the same time, like Maywin and millions of others like us, Saul's conversion is just like any other, as a sinner who has been transformed into a saint by the grace of God alone. This morning, we want to consider God's work in conversion. And we want to stand back and marvel at the sheer grace of his work to take a sinner And form him into the image of his son. And we want to come away not only understanding our own life and ministry better. But be overjoyed at this thought. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. From these verses we see three common elements to the salvation of every believer. It begins first with our calling. Our calling. Like all of us who believe Saul's calling to faith and salvation began with him seeing not just his sin, but his just condemnation for sin. His just condemnation for sin. If you remember where we're at in the course of Acts, the series, uh, this series that uh, Pastor Rick and I are doing, that the church is growing and the gospel is on the move. 
It began in Jerusalem, and now it has slowly began to spread out into the surrounding regions. But that has not come without persecution. Saul was at the forefront of a movement that was hoping to stamp out what the Jewish people believed was a blasphemous cult against the one true and living God. And though he himself may not have actually killed any believer at this point, he certainly had the heart of a murderer. We're told in chapter 8 that he approved of Stephen's murder at the hand of the religious leaders. In fact, he is the one who, who held, even watched over the cloaks, approving as his mentors hurled rocks and destroyed one of God's servants. Likewise here, Luke tells us in verse 1, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. His every intention is to see the church destroyed, even if it means killing someone. But the risen Lord Jesus literally sheds light on his sinful heart. The glory of the Lord surrounds Saul and brings him to his knees as the voice of the Lord calls out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Think about this for a second. Saul hated the name of Jesus. And in that way, he was an instrument of Satan against the church. For Satan hates the glory of Christ. His, his whole design is to, is to lessen the glory that Jesus will receive in this life and in the life to come. And yet it is this Jesus, it is this voice of this one that he thought was a blasphemer, a false prophet, a false messiah that booms out of heaven in his ears. The, the, the thought would have been completely unthinkable to Saul. This man is dead! This rebel rouser was killed. He was crucified. How can he be alive? How can he be speaking to me? How can he come with the glory of heaven? Jesus was indeed the true Messiah, not a mere man, but one who was died and conquered death, was raised back to life, and was now at the glory of the Father's right hand. Saul's entire world just collapsed around him at this very moment. All of his attempts at righteousness before God have now been shown to be transgressions heaped up on the negative side of his spiritual ledger. Everything that he thought he was doing to bring God glory and to earn God's grace is gone. It's meaningless. He will later call it rubbish, garbage, something to be swept out and thrown away. Saul was a man of tremendous zeal, but it was a blind misguided zeal. He thought he was pursuing righteousness when he was really resisting sinfully the very God he thought he served. Friend, are you here in the same place as this man Saul? Are you here thinking that God is going to accept you one day because of all your righteous deeds? Are you here believing that if I just work hard enough, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just pray enough, if I just serve in ministry long enough, that that God will look upon those things favorably and accept me and save me? Friend, that is only a path that leads directly to hell. The Bible is clear that none of our works are ever good enough to outweigh the offense of sin in God's eyes. Even as believers... Our works are a sweet-smelling aroma. They are pleasant to the Lord, but not enough to earn righteousness. Not enough to, to pay back salvation. And yet being told this, being confronted that we are sinners and that we will receive a just condemnation by God for our sin is in fact a mercy to get us to look away from ourselves to 
the instrument of salvation that God has provided for us, namely his son, Jesus. Though crushed by the weight of his condemnation, God used this realization to lead Saul to humble faith for salvation. This is the second part of our calling, humble faith for salvation. The young scholar who once boasted in his learning of the scriptures is now humbled because he's missed it. Think about the accusation that that Jesus made to the Pharisees in John's gospel. And in chapter 5, he says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you will find salvation, but they point to me. He says, the scriptures are all about me. They're, They're getting you ready for me. They're pointing to me. They are fulfilled in me. And you can't see that. So you're not going to see salvation. And here is Saul, who has dedicated his life to the Bible. He's dedicated his life to God's word. He knows it inside and out. He thought he has kept every meticulous law he can. And when he has failed, he has offered the sacrifice that his sin might be atoned for. He might be right with God. And he realized, I've missed the whole thing. It was all about this son of a carpenter who was the true Messiah. This one unstoppable Saul is left blind and helpless, being led by the hand back to someone else's house. And I don't think this was so much a judgment on him, but a tangible expression of his spiritual state. It's as if God is saying, this is how you've been living your whole life. Blinded to the things of me. You thought you knew me, but you didn't. You could not see clearly my plan at work. In fact, Saul himself will later pick this imagery up, this this imagery of blindness to describe the spiritual state of every unbeliever. Where does this humbling lead? Faith in Christ. When the Lord appears to Ananias, and Ananias is not sure. He's like, uh, I, I don't know about this guy. What, what, what does the Lord say? Go get this man. Behold, he is praying. Some of you hear that. You say, okay, he's praying. What, what's the big deal? If that's your first thoughts, I love you. But you don't understand what prayer is. Calvin rightly called it the chief exercise of faith. Meaning, unlike any other activity that we can do, authentic prayer is the sign of true faith. It's the fruit of knowing and loving and trusting God. Isn't that what Pastor Greg showed us Jesus taught back in John 15? Prayer shows that we are utterly dependent on our Heavenly Father and that we will believe, that we believe He will provide the very things that we need. The risen Jesus revealed to Saul what the church knew, that He was The promised Christ who offered his life for sins. This message that Saul once tried to stamp out, he now humbly embraced. He prayed, he called out to the Lord, I'm sure for forgiveness, for understanding, for for, for help to move forward. Perhaps thinking he'll be blind now for the rest of his life. In following this Messiah that he once thought was a blasphemer. Knowing our sin And trusting our Savior are the essential elements of any Christian call to salvation. Christ calls us out of sin, out of the depths of our depravity, to faith in Him. And if we've experienced that calling, if we have indeed turned away from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, then we have also experienced Christ's commissioning. Christ's commissioning. This is the the second key element of conversion. The Lord speaks to Ananias in a vision to go meet Saul, but Ananias is worried about it. He says, um, Lord, you know who you're talking about, right? This is the guy who's 
been ravaging the church in Jerusalem, who just got letters to come into my backyard, Damascus, and do us harm. Are you sure you got the name right? Are you sure the address is correct? It's not the Bent Street rather than the Straight Street? And that seems utterly foolish to us, doesn't it? But don't we kind of do the same thing? God is super clear about many, many things in the Bible. And whether or not we say it in direct prayer like Ananias did, in the back of our mind we're thinking, yeah, but God, this is 2019. I mean, you know that doesn't play well in the media, right? You know, the people that I work with are going to laugh at me for believing that, right? You, you, you understand that, you know, I, I, I want to get my kids involved in all these kind of activities. You can't really expect this kind of burden of ministry to be placed on my life. Those are the kind of questions that we ask. And of course, just like, just like God says to Ananias here, God says to us, go, go, do what I say, follow me, obey me. We'll come back to that to the end. The Lord knows that Ananias doesn't know that Saul is a genuine believer, a changed man, a disciple of the Lord, graciously called of darkness into light. And what does this new disciple do? What does Saul do as a new disciple? He does the very thing that every believer should do. Number one, he bears witness to Christ. And that's what we should do, bear witness to Christ. The Lord says to Ananias, go to Saul, as I've said, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul is going to have a unique commissioning. He will be the apostle to the Gentiles, a spiritual pioneer, forging a trail of faith from the Jewish church to the nations of the world, for which we are very thankful because we stand in one of those nations of the world today. How will he do this, though? How will Saul fulfill this commission? By preaching the gospel. By telling the good news of salvation. Not just by doing good works. But by pointing people from the Bible to Jesus and saying, put your faith in him. We see that in verse 20. We show from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. The only way of salvation for sinners. That commission, that part of it on Saul's life is the same that all of us believers have. Every disciple receives from the risen Christ this task to preach his glorious name that sinners might be saved. We are called to be disciples who make other disciples. And that we might admire greatly someone like Saul who would go on to travel the world with the gospel or someone like Patrick who would return back to a um, bad situation of a, a land of, of, of slavery and paganism. I fear our struggle is far more mundane. Our greatest challenge is finding the courage to walk across the street to our neighbors, to go across the office to the desk of someone who works next to us all the time, to reach out to that estranged family member and to begin to tell them about Jesus. Our struggle is to see blinded, pagan people all around us living on a path that leads to condemnation and find ourselves moved with compassion for them and for their eternal destiny. To see them giving their lives in worship of mundane earthly things and with passion, desire, they give their worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of change that must happen in our heart if we're going to be faithful and bearing witness to Christ, but we can't bring that about ourselves. Instead, God shows us even here that this is something he does by his Holy Spirit. 
Verse 7 says that when Ananias put his hands on Saul, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some will say this is how it always works. You show up to one church meeting and you find forgiveness. You show up to another church meeting and you get filled with the Spirit. Is that, is that the pattern that we should see here? No. No. And, and, even, and even as I argue why I think it's no from this text and from the rest of Acts, I'll just say there are good brothers that I love that disagree with me here. So uh, as you're listening, your mileage may vary here. I don't have 30 minutes to argue my whole position, but um, here, here's what I think. If Saul's later words in Romans 8 are true, and that no one is able to put faith in God for salvation apart from the Spirit's enabling work, which incidentally, Jesus seems to teach in John 3. And once again in Romans 8, no one is able to live a life that pleases God apart from the work of the Spirit in his life. Then I think that Paul could not have, not had the Spirit up until this point. In order to feel conviction of sin and turn his eyes and faith toward God, he must have had the Spirit operating in his life. In fact, I think both Testaments make clear, not all of Israel, but the believing remnant, those who were of true faith, those that wrote the Psalms and, and many other things that we see, that they had the Spirit of God as well, just not to the degree that Christians have today. After Pentecost, the fullness of the Spirit was poured out on all God's people in equal measure across all nations. So that once what once flowed like streams of mercy in the Old Covenant now roar forth like Niagara in the New Covenant people of God. So Saul was saved, answering God's call by the power of God's Spirit through faith in God's Son. Yet the fullness of that New Covenant blessing did not come into his life until Ananias laid hands on him. Now why would God do that? Well, I think for the same reason that we see this back in chapter 8 with the Samaritans, and we're going to see in chapter 10 with, uh, with the Gentiles, that the church is in a period of transition, and the assumption is salvation is for the Jewish people. And they have struggled up to this point to see all of the promises, even in the Old Covenant, that salvation is going to be for all nations. And so God is kind to help them to observe the Spirit falling on these different kinds of people outside of Israel. So they can know, look at that, they have the Spirit too. Look at that guy, he's got the Spirit too. And so specifically for Paul, one who was called uh, out of a life of persecution against the church to be an apostle for the church, we need someone like Ananias who can bear witness to the fact that he indeed has received the fullness of God's Spirit. He is a genuine believer, someone who is going to labor alongside us and for us so that we can trust him and make him to be part of our covenant community. What's interesting, though, is that much like today, once you get to the later chapters of Acts, once it's already been established by God, that yes, the Gentiles are in full fellowship with the Jews. Again, good news for us, right? Unless, unless you know something about your DNA that I don't, we're all Gentiles here, right? This is good news for us. Once it's been established that Gentiles have the fullness of the Spirit, they're not second-class citizens, then what happens? This kind of delayed response goes away. We don't see it in Acts anymore. And such is reality today. When we believe, when we experience the gift of 
faith. God doing a miraculous work in our mind and our heart to free us from the blindness of sin that we may see his glory and put our faith in him. In that moment, we are not only receiving the regenerating power of the spirit, but the fullness of Pentecost's gift and enabling for love and life and ministry by God himself who dwells within us by his spirit. The Spirit gives us wisdom and clarity and courage to do what? To bear witness to God's Son. And like Saul, that's how we should live. That's how we should seek to conduct our lives. But as we do that, as we bear witness to Christ, we should serve with the church. We should serve with the church. This is what we see in Saul's life here, and this is what you part of our life as well. When I was growing up, um, all of the commercials, all of the recruiting commercials I used to see for the Army, apart from a couple of really good episodes of G.I. Joe uh, that also had that effect in my life, but all of the official Army recruiting commercials all had uh, one jingle uh, that would play at some point in there, usually towards the end. It was this kind of rousing lyric, be all that you can be, find your future in the Army. Now, you say, I don't know that was good singing. Well, just look it up on YouTube. It'll be better. The, the, the point is, this was the army slogan. Be all you can be. And that served them well for 15, 20 years. Then the new millennium hit. They thought we need to change things up. And so they switched to the slogan, army of one. But that didn't last very long. Why? Because now the focus shifted in those commercials. Now... Those commercials were all focused on the individual and did not show any of the things I grew up watching in the 80s and 90s on those awesome promo commercials for the Army, and that was teamwork, partnership, camaraderie. Yeah, it was be all you can be, but the, but the, the, the thought was, the intention was, the idea that was portrayed was be all you can be together with these other guys who are going to make you better and gals. They're going to help you to be all that you can be. You're working together in this army. And the shift to army of one kind of negated that. And so it was only like five years and then boop, that's gone. And now it's army strong. They realize we're missing something here. Teamwork is essential to the army. If you're not all together on mission, on point, working together, then you're, you're going to fail. And the same is true in the church. If there's anything, anything I hope you see, from this series on Acts, outside of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the necessity of the unity of the church. The, the, the fellowship of God's people. Christ has called us not just to himself, but into his people. A spiritual family. A gathering of workers that complement one another in our gifting and skills. And we are only as strong apart as we are strong together. I, so some of you know, I desperately love theology. And if I'm not spending time with my family or doing ministry, I, I would just sit with a giant pile of books and just read and read and read and exalt in who God is and what he's done in this world. But the greatest theological lesson I have learned over the last few years is the immense blessing and power of the church, being the church, living, loving, and serving together under Christ's banner. Elsewhere in the letters he would write to the church, Saul makes a big deal about receiving the gospel, not from any man or being dependent on any other apostle, but directly from Christ. But that did not make him an independent apostle. 
all of his life from this time forward, Saul is intimately connected with the people of God, the church. That is what he is laboring for. The church, the church, the church. It begins here with Ananias. Again, sometimes, you know, and I'm guilty of this, we, we, we buzz through things. How does Ananias address Saul? Hey, dude, you used to kill people. My name's Ananias, the Lord sent me. That's not what he says, is it? Brother Saul. That's not just a southern thing, okay? In the New Testament, that means you are one of us. We are united by faith. Our brotherhood, our sisterhood goes beyond blood to the blood of God's own son. He puts his hand on him and says, Brother Saul, that is the love of God pouring out of his life to this great persecutor who may not have had any idea how he was going to be accepted among God's people. Of course, not everybody embraced him, but as Ananias helps to bridge that gap in Damascus, Barnabas was there in Damascus. He heard the testimony. He saw his labor in the Lord, and so he brings him into fellowship with the church at Jerusalem through the apostles. More than that, though, notice in verse 18, Saul was baptized into the church. Baptism is no mere religious light. It is right. It is a sign both of our communion with Christ and our, our communion with his people. Jesus confronts Saul, doesn't he? He, said, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? When he confronts Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? To be united with Jesus by faith is to be united with his people. You can't have one without the other. That is how Saul lived and served, and that's how we should live and serve today. Rich vibrant, gospel-driven friendships that go beyond mere coffee and laughs should be the warp and woof of our life together as a church. Paul received a calling to faith that included a commission to preach, which he fulfilled with great commitment, and we should as well. This is, this is the, the third component of the converting work of God, bringing a sinner into his kingdom and making him a saint. We are called, we are commissioned, and now we live with great commitment to Christ. What does it look like? Well, again, Saul's life is helpful to us. First, we see it means that we ought to make disciples. We ought to make disciples. Across verses 20 through 30, we're told things like this about Saul. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. He increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he went in and out among them, that is the believers at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Saul didn't waste any time. He was on it from the beginning. And I love verse 25. People are trying to kill him in Damascus for preaching the gospel. Who saves him? His disciples. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus' disciples? No, Saul is the person closest to that, that the pronoun goes back to. Saul's disciples. What does that mean? That means as helpful as it is, and as often as he does it, his ministry is not limited to simply public proclamation. He's not just someone who stands on the street corner and preaches Christ, preaches Christ. He does that. But what else does he do? He gets down into the nitty-gritty of the lives of the people who respond. He is spending time with them one-on-one. -on -one. He is showing them who Jesus is from the scriptures. He's, he's instructing them on how to live a life that honors him as their savior and their king. He's not just making converts. He's making disciples. Though he never spent a minute with Jesus during his earthly ministry, Saul's ministry looks remarkably similar, doesn't it? 
He is gathering these people around himself. He's loving them. He's teaching them. He's working the gospel into the pores of their souls. And if you want to see what that looks like about 20 or 30 years on, a little snapshot of the fruit of that kind of labor, look at the second half of Colossians chapter 4 this afternoon. If you read quickly, it's just a list of names. But if you slow down and consider what kind of names those are, the kind of comments that he makes about these people, what do we see? We see men and women and Jews and Gentiles, slaves and freedmen, poor and wealthy. And what are they doing? They are all laboring alongside Paul in ministry. Why? Because as he has preached the gospel and he has, under, I believe, the direction of the Holy Spirit, seen the, 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 the gifting and the working and, and the, the way people respond, he has, he has grabbed certain key people up and he's taken them with him on missionary journeys and he's trained them up and he's left them other places. Some people get picked up in one town, they travel with Paul, and he says, you know what, you're going to stay here and you're going to be the elder of this church and you're going to stay here and you're going to support this other church and you're going to be here and you're going to encourage this and I want to write this letter and I'm going to give it to you and I need you to go to these other churches and make sure they all read it and they passes the letters around. It's a glorious picture of genuine disciple-making, spirit-filled, gospel-preaching ministry. It's a beautiful picture of the pattern that should mark our own life and ministry. Preaching Christ, seeing the law saved, teaching them how to live as disciples, bringing them alongside us in ministry that they might be launched out on their own and repeat that cycle over and over and over again. That's how the church doesn't merely grow, but is multiplied. To simplify it, in words that may be familiar to you, it's the prayerful speaking of the gospel to move people to the right by evangelism, edification, and equipping for ministry. A committed disciple makes disciples. Saul's life proves that. The rest of his letters bear that out, both in his testimony and in his instruction to us. And as they do... They must endure difficulty. Endure difficulty. This is what the second part, at least from these verses, of a, a life committed to Christ looks like. Right from the get-go, the Lord told Ananias that he would show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Inherent in Paul's commission as an apostle was a call to suffer. And it didn't take long for that to manifest itself, did it? Uh, Saul immediately, one of, one of Mark's favorite words, he immediately is preaching the gospel saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And what happens? Immediately he's getting flack. He gets rain on one town, he gets rain on another town, he's facing rejection, threats of death, the Jews are plotting to kill him. That's the general pattern of his life from this time forward. Wonderful times of fruitful ministry punctuated by these great times of difficulty and suffering. Beatings, hunger, abandonment, a shipwreck, and more. But none of it stopped him. Shouldn't stop us either. Most of us are probably not going to be shipwrecked for the sake of the gospel. Most of us are not going to be abandoned by workers on a mission field who turn around and say, nope, I'm going, I'm going back home. I want my mama. That's likely not going to happen to us. But we still go through difficulty. Sometimes just living in a sinful world. Sometimes just something like cancer, or the loss of a loved one, or uh, mistreatment at a job. Things that if we're not careful threaten to take our eyes off the prize of a future hope with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we begin to turn inward and feel sorry for ourselves and wonder why is God allowing this to happen to me as if somehow we deserve better. Saul knew he didn't deserve better. 
He, he, he said, he said his, in, 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 in Corinthians, he says that his conversion, his salvation was like an abortion. That's the word he uses in Greek. He says, unexpected, it's out of time, it's not the right thing. And all the more that made him to know how much he was indebted to God for his grace. And so later he would write this in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's what drives Saul. That's what allowed him to endure difficulty and hardship and suffering. He was captivated by God's grace, saving him, changing him, and giving him a future hope. Remembering this, believing this today, will also fuel an enduring enduring faith in us, even in the worst kinds of difficulty. Finally, in our commitment to God, we should not only make disciples and endure difficulty, but we ought to live devotedly. We ought to live devotedly before Christ. God took one who was a terror to the church and made him to be a great encouragement to the church. And what was the result of Saul's labor? The church, through verse 31, the church through all Judea and Galilee, Samaria, had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if that, if someone would look at us with great spiritual insight and say, that's how this man lives his life. That's how this woman lives his life. That's how this young person lives their life. They walk in the fear of the Lord and enjoy the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I know that's hard. I, I, I feel the difficulty of that kind of focus in life now more than I ever had in my life. Kids are at school, they're involved in activities. You have a nine-to-five job that just wears you out and drains you emotionally. People are coming and going all the time, and very quickly you begin to feel like, I've got nothing left to give God. Even Sunday mornings can become rote. I'm just showing up because I know it's expected, it's the right thing to do, and I hope it's going to help some way this week. Loved ones, that's not what we're called to. That's not what we've been commissioned to. That's not what our life commitment should look like. God has promised and called us to something far better, far more satisfying, far more joyful. As people being remade into the image of Christ, we must devote ourselves to Him. Not just out of obedience, though that's reason number one, But reason number two, as we've just sung, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's really what fearing the Lord is all about. It's about living in awe of Him and His ways, believing and obeying all that He says. And we do this, how? Comforted by the Spirit that assures us, God loves you. God's united your life to Christ by my presence. That, that my being here with you is a gift that seals the salvation that you've been promised in the message of the gospel. You need not fear the future, for it is secure. As George Whitfield would say, in this life you are immortal until God's work for you is done. 
So when we feel ourselves dragged down, when we feel ourselves unable to focus, feeling like God and ministry and spiritual things are an, are an afterthought, the, the, the antidote is not more downtime. The antidote is more God time. The antidote is a, is, a, is a slow but steady, consistent refocusing of our vision on Jesus. We might walk devotedly before him. As our time draws to a close, let's just stop and take all this in for a minute. Here was Saul, a man with murderous intent towards Jesus' followers. The, the apex of his religious zeal could be summarized by this mission statement. To glorify God by destroying the church. And what has the risen Christ do? What does he do but remake this murderer? Completely remake him into something New. He reorients his entire life so that now he joyfully endures hardship and suffering for the very people he was trying to stamp out of existence. That the very church he sought to destroy, he gives his life over that it might thrive and multiply. All in the name of Jesus. From our perspective, it's, it's not just unexpected. From the human perspective, such a change is impossible. It, it would be like Bill Maher becoming a Republican. We just think it's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yet in dramatic relief, God shows us this truth that we too often casually throw in the sides of coffee mugs and pencils. With God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Maybe you're here today and you think you're beyond this kind of change. You're beyond salvation. I hope that you see if God can change someone like Saul, into what he became for the church, then you need not fear what God can do in your life. You need not wonder, can, can he change me? Yes, yes, he can indeed change you. You are not too far from God for his redemption. This morning, look to Jesus in faith. Believe what Saul believed, that Jesus bore your sins, that God's just judgment for your sins upon himself at the cross and was raised back to life to be your Savior and your King forevermore. God has shown us in this passage that no one is beyond his ability to save. And so, loved ones, that truth alone should sustain us and propel us every day in our commitment to Christ's call and commission for our lives. So let's pray for that now. Father, we are indeed thankful for your immense mercy in our lives. We're so thankful for the salvation that you've given to us. Father, we pray that we would not waste our days. Father, that we would not become one who is entangled in the affairs of this world to the point that our love and our faith and our devotion for you is choked out. Father, we pray that you would help us to behold the glory of your son just as Saul did, that we might find ourselves captivated by him find our motivations and our priorities reoriented towards Him. And that, Father, this would joyfully sustain us in the midst of busyness and labor. Father, we pray that both individually and as a church, that we would rejoice in what You have done in our life and that that would encourage us all the more to labor together for Jesus' sake. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.